altered society itself. So much so that we've become accustomed to it that we can't imagine life without a smartphone or even a piece of paper, oddly enough. Right in the realm of technology, we think about the printing press, we think about electricity, we think about the internet and the personal computer breakthroughs that each of us feel today, even right now as we meet, right? We're experiencing many of those breakthroughs. In the realm of medicine, we think of anesthesia, which makes surgery a little bit easier, thankfully. Or we think of penicillin, right, which was an accidental breakthrough in 1928 that fought against bacterial infections before antibiotics came along or became popularized after World War II. In the realm of agriculture, right, where would the South and the Midwest be without the plow or the combine harvester, right, the plow to, to be able to till over, to turn over that soil so that we can see the land or the combine harvester that cuts and separates massive amounts of grain, making it a lot easier. There are definitely other categories of breakthroughs. Many football analysts are saying the Cowboys need a breakthrough next year in order just to make the playoffs. Poor Cowboys fans. Failing to meet expectations year in and year out, unlike my Chiefs. Or certain companies, right? We think about them needing a breakthrough in order to make profit by the year's end. Why? Because the first couple of quarters are not going well. They need a breakthrough. But in all of these categories of breakthroughs, there is one that is more important than all the rest. And that is you. That's you. Do you need a breakthrough in your life? Do you need a breakthrough? In our text this afternoon, Micah gives us the breakthrough that we all need most, but we often neglect. A breakthrough that doesn't get much airtime compared to all the other breakthroughs that we encounter throughout our days. What we all need most is a divine breakthrough in our lives. A breakthrough that no human could manufacture or invent by their own power, a breakthrough that delivers us from a day of darkness to a day of light, from a day of death to a day of life, a day of bondage to a day of freedom, a breakthrough that doesn't exist for this life only and does not get outdated, but actually secures our eternal life to come. The one breakthrough that we all most need and long for a breakthrough that is truly a matter of life and death. This is the divine breakthrough that we get to consider from Micah 2. So if you would turn with me to Micah chapter 2, and we're going to look at that divine breakthrough. Micah chapter 2. Last week we began a new sermon series in the Old Testament book of Micah. Micah comes right after that famous book of Jonah and right before the lesser-known book of Nahum. And we saw that Micah is situated among the minor prophets. And we learned that they are called minor, not because they are minor in their depth, right, in the depth of their message, but rather in the length of their message, compared to Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And the message of the minor prophets was initially actually one scroll, known as the Twelve. And they all share three common themes. We're going to see this in three different sections throughout the book of Micah. They share the common themes of sin and judgment and salvation. You're going to see that across the minor prophets, sin, judgment, 
in salvation. We're going to see it in Micah in three particular ways that begin with the word listen. So for instance, the first section includes chapters 1 and 2. You can see the word listen, right? God's call to listen to him there in verse 2 of chapter 1. We get it again at the beginning of chapter 3, which is the second section of the book, calling us to listen again from chapters 3 to 5. And then in the final section, we get listen again in chapter at the beginning of chapter 6, where chapters 6 and 7 complete the book of Micah. Each section begins with that call, and it intensifies with each section on those themes of sin, of judgment, and of salvation. We're going to get a sneak peek at that salvation today, but it is only going to get louder as we work through the book to the very end. So last week we saw that both the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, they're in dire straits. Because of their acts of rebellion and idolatry, the Lord is coming to judge them. And he's actually going to use an idolatrous nation, the nation of Assyria at that time, to judge them. Neither kingdom has kept God's covenant by obeying his commands. Neither worships the Lord their God alone. And as a result, God is going to send his people into exile because they've left the Lord in their rebellion. And so the Lord calls the nations that we learned last week to listen to his judgment on his people, to look at his judgment upon his people. And then he calls his own people to lament this coming judgment upon them. Israel's future looks bleak. It looks bleak. They need a divine breakthrough. They need a divine breakthrough. But how will it come? Well, let's find out by reading the text. So if you would follow along with me as I read the text there in Micah chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Woe to those who dream up wickedness and prepare evil plans on their beds. At morning light, they accomplish it because the power is in their hands. They covet fields and seize them. They also take houses. They deprive a man of his home, a person of his inheritance, Therefore, the Lord says, I am now planning a disaster against this nation. You cannot free your necks from it. Then you will not walk so proudly because it will be an evil time. In that day, one will take up a taunt against you and lament mournfully, saying, we are totally ruined. He measures out the allotted land of my people, how he removes it from me. He allots our fields to traitors. Therefore, there will be no one in the assembly of the Lord to divide the land by casting lots. Quit your preaching, they preach. They should not preach these things. Shame will not overtake us. House of Jacob, should it be asked, is the spirit of the Lord impatient? Are these the things he does? Don't my words bring good to the one who walks uprightly? But recently, my people have risen up like an enemy. You strip off the splendid robe from those who are passing through confidently, like those returning from war. You force the women of my people out of their comfortable homes, and you take my blessing from their children forever. Get up and leave, for this is not your place of rest, because defilement brings destruction, a grievous destruction. If a man comes and utters empty lies, I will preach to you about wine and beer. He would be just the preacher. For this people, I will indeed gather all of you, 
Jacob. I will collect the remnant of Israel. I will bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in the middle of its pasture. It will be noisy with people. One who breaks open the way will advance before them. They will break out, pass through the city gate, and leave by it. Their king will pass through before them. The Lord as their leader. If you want to get at a main idea of this text, I think this is it. The main idea of Micah chapter 2, I think, is this. That the Lord who judges oppression will deliver us from such oppression. The Lord who judges oppression will deliver us from such oppression. This text really continues the theme last week, that God's judgment is coming. And it actually even gets more specific as to the reason for this judgment and really the fruit of Israel's idolatry, which we're going to see in this text. And so what we're going to see right here in our three points is point number one, the reason for judgment. We're going to see this in verses one to five, the reason for judgment. Mike is getting more specific in chapter two. The reason for judgment, point number one, verses one to five. The second thing that we're going to see is the reaction of God's people to this judgment. So the reaction to judgment is point number two in verses six to 11. The reaction to judgment in verses six to 11. And then we're going to conclude with a sweet, short note about the redemption from judgment. The redemption from judgment in verses 12 to 13. Those are going to serve as our three points. They're going to guide us throughout this passage. So let's look at the first point, the reason for judgment in verses 1 to 5. The theme of judgment against the kingdom of Judah continues in verse 1. And we know because of how it starts. It begins with that word, woe, which is a declaration of death and disaster. It was often used actually at funerals during that day to mourn the dead. So you might have seen AMC's hit show, The Walking Dead. You might have seen that show. Well, the men in our text are dead men walking, minus the zombie part. They are dead men walking. That's what that woe is getting at. These are dead men walking. But why are they dead men walking? Micah tells us that they prepare evil plans right there in verses 1 and 2. They prepare evil plans on their beds. At morning light, they accomplish it because the power is in their hands. They covet fields and seize them. They also take houses. They deprive a man of his home, a person of his inheritance. And so what we're seeing right here is that the idolatry of the people in chapter 1 has manifested itself now in oppressive behavior toward one another. It's manifesting itself in oppressive behavior. These men, they lie awake on their beds at night scheming about how to exploit their neighbor. In this agrarian society, you had these wealthy landowners using their power to defraud their fellow Israelites, scheming about how to acquire more possessions and more land. It was never enough what they had. They had to have more. The Bible doesn't necessarily say, right? it doesn't ever say that economic gain is inherently evil. That's not what Micah is getting at right here. That economic gain is somehow evil. It's not what he's getting at. What's evil is when it's used at the expense of and at the harm and the hurt 
of others. That's what's evil. That's what God's people are doing. This was a rich man's world where the ethic of the day was might makes right. That was the ethic of the day. Rather than use their wealth to support the disadvantaged neighbor, they used it to defraud their neighbor for their own gain. This included anything from murdering their neighbor and then taking their land. If you remember Ahab and Naboth in 1 Kings chapter 21, it could include that. It could include also moving one's boundary marker in order to gain more property. Just move those stones further on out. Nobody will know so that I can get more property for myself. It also included manipulating the legal system to get someone to, defra- or to, get someone to default on a loan so that they could just take their property. Whatever way possible, they were going to get more. But why is God so upset? What's got him in a tizzy? Why is God so upset? And God is particularly upset about this. Because this idea of land or inheritance is an important one biblically. When the Lord brought his people into the land of Canaan, He gave them the land. He told them to divide it up between the tribes and the clans and the families. And so the land was to remain in those families from generation to generation permanently. That was God's gift to them. God owns the land. That was his gift to them. It was to remain with them. Matter of fact, he cared so much about their inheritance that he enacted the law of the year of Jubilee to protect any Israelite who fell on hard times and had to sell their property. So that at the 50th year, what would happen? There would be a reallocation of the land, and it would be reset to its original families. What these men were doing was appalling to God, because they were trying to steal what God gave to the people as a gift. They thought that they had the power to take this land. But God owns the land, and you can't rob God of his land. And so their wicked actions exposed, really, the heart of the problem. And we see the heart of the problem in verse 2. Look with me at verse 2. We see the heart of the problem in verse 2. What does it say that they do, starting there in verse 2? They covet. They covet. The idolatry that we saw in chapter 1, how is it now manifesting itself in chapter 2? But through coveting. That's how it's manifesting itself. They had broken the Tenth Commandment. Do not covet your neighbor's house. Do not covet your neighbor's wife, his male servant or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Now, to covet is to have a faithless desire to obtain what belongs to your neighbor. That's what coveting is. It's to have a faithless desire to obtain what belongs to your neighbor. It's been said that the unique evil of covetousness is that we value what our neighbor has more than what our neighbor is. We desire our neighbor's possessions for ourselves rather than actually loving our neighbors as ourselves. Coveting actually devalues our neighbor by caring more about what they have than who they are. That's what coveting does. Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 3, verse 5, that covetousness is idolatry. We value what's created more than the creator. And when we covet, we exchange God's glory and man's dignity for a lie. 
And so the reason that we don't love our neighbor as ourselves is because we don't love the Lord our God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength, right? We think of those two great commands. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor as yourself. You can't love your neighbor as yourself if you don't love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Coveting is a matter of worship. It's a matter of worship. Now, you might be saying to yourself, well, Trey, that's great, you know, but I'm not like these people in the text who are stealing their neighbor's inheritance. Like, I'm not going out trying to loot people of their belongings. And that might be true. But do you steal it in your heart? Do you steal it in your heart? Jesus tells us in Mark chapter 7, verse 22, that covetousness is a heart issue. And under this big category of coveting, we really see it express itself in lust and envy and greed. It's a big umbrella term. Right, so think about the world that we live in today, right? We're exposed to people's lives 24-7 through social media. Instagram and Facebook have given us a front row seat to what's going on in everybody's world. Right? The temptation to covet has probably never been greater than it is today. And so when you see someone post online about who they hung out with, does envy begin to creep up in your heart over the kinds of relationships that they have that you long for? Is there envy that begins to creep up? Has your discontentment with your job or your home life led you to covet your friend's job or your neighbor's well-mannered kids or their loving spouse? Do you covet someone's season of life because you're in a particularly difficult season? When they're posting online, do you covet the season that they're in? Oh, they've got older kids. So much better if I had that. Do you covet their season of life? When something good happens to a close friend or a family member, do you actually grieve that good? Do you grieve the good because you wish it was you? Do you grieve it because you wish it was you? And this can happen anytime that we hear about someone getting pregnant, when we want to be pregnant, married whenever we long to be married, or that promotion that you thought you would get, but it actually went to your coworker. All these are ways that we grieve when something good happens to somebody else because we wanted it and we didn't get it. When you gain something that you've wanted, are you greedy for more? Is the money that you have never enough? Norman Rockefeller was once asked, how much money does it take to be happy? To which he said, just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. Is that little bit more never enough for you? Might there be greed exposing your own covetousness and idolatry? We see the bad fruit of coveting in that it squelches compassion because you care more about someone's possessions than you actually do about that person themselves. It squelches contentment because nothing is ever enough to be able to satisfy you. That's what it squelches. And look at the consequence of unrepentant coveting in verses 3 to 5. Look at the consequences here. The Lord says that just as the nation of Judah prepared evil plans and they used their power to deprive a person of their inheritance, so God is now what? In verse 3. 
planning a disaster against this nation. He's going to take what they covet and what they seize, and he's actually going to hand it over to their traitors there at the end of verse 4. There's not going to be anyone in the assembly of the Lord to divide the land because God's going to remove the land from them, and he's going to remove the people from the land and give it to their enemies in verse 5. There will be no one in the assembly because they will be taken from God's presence into exile. We begin to see the fulfillment of this prophecy in 586 BC when the Babylonians came in and actually took the southern kingdom of Judah into exile. We begin to see this take place. And so friends, it's a reminder for us and a warning for us that the Lord is not lazy or haphazard in judgment. He's calculated so that the punishment always and forever and rightly fits the crime. We learned that last week, right? An eye for an eye. It always fits the crime. His judgment is never excessive, but always exacting. He has given, he's given them what their sins deserve. They can't cry out foul play. God is giving them what their sins deserve. The message in the New Testament is actually similar. The Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 5, verse 5, that no greedy or covetous person will have an inheritance in the, cre- in the kingdom of Christ and of God. No covetous person, no, no person that is living a life of covetousness and not repenting of it, they will not inherit the kingdom of Christ. Friends, if you live to covet, you will die condemned. If you live to covet, you will die condemned. As Micah has made clear, those who engage in a lifestyle of covetousness, they are dead men and women walking. Dead men and women walking. So that brings up the question, okay, well, what hope is there for a covetous heart? What hope is there for your covetous heart? The Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 to 11, that Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be what? Exploited. Did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. Jesus never exploited his power nor his position to oppress people. Instead, he used it to pay for the sins of his people through his death on the cross so that their inheritance would be imperishable. It would be undefiled. It would be unfading kept in heaven for them. Brothers and sisters, Christ put coveting to death on the cross and rose to give us an inheritance that no one can ever take away. So how do you turn from a heart of covetousness into a heart of compassion and contentment? Well, what do you do other than you look to the very compassion of Christ himself who didn't exploit his power? but he actually used his power for the eternal good of his people. You look to Christ, who provided all that you need in life and godliness, all that you need for life and godliness through his own death and resurrection. 
we will only be as content as we are satisfied in Jesus. We will only be content as we are satisfied in Jesus. He is the only one that is sufficient to be able to satisfy every longing of our very hearts. Looking to him leads us to show compassion to our neighbor and to rest content in all that God provides because our greatest need has ultimately been met in Jesus. As we begin to take a a step deeper into the problem that's really plaguing Judah, we learn that part of the issue with the nation in her relationship to God is really with God's word of which they've rejected. And so we move from the reason for judgment to their reaction to judgment. Point number two, the reaction to judgment in verses 6 to 11. Micah's message clearly did not sit well with the establishment of Judah. Things were so bad that they loved false prophets preaching false prophecies. Right, and you can see how dire their situation is because these false prophets in verse 6, if you look right there, they tell Micah and the true prophets to what? Quit your preaching. We don't want to hear that. Quit your preaching. They shouldn't preach these things. Shame will not overtake us. These false prophets had the people under their spell so that they no longer even had an appetite for God's word. They didn't want to hear about judgment when they could hear that all was well. You can imagine the kind of loot that these false prophets made off these people. I mean, goodness, right? Putting lies in the mouth of God. The Lord says in verse 11, If a man comes and utters empty lies, I will preach to you about wine and beer. He would be just the preacher for these people. In this time of prosperity and peace, Judah was happy to sacrifice truth for false prophets, telling them that everything was good. Right? This is not a day of judgment. It's a day of prosperity. It's a day of wine and beer. It's a day of celebration. Come on. You want healing? Have enough faith. God's going to give it to you. These people are throwing a party in a soon-to-be graveyard. Imagine that image. Throwing a party in a soon-to-be graveyard. They loved hearing about the steadfast love of the Lord, but they didn't want to hear about him not leaving the guilty unpunished. They didn't want to hear that one. They thought their status as God's people actually exempted them from God's judgment. And so they got preachers motivated by popularity and profit rather than the praise of God to preach to them. Not only was this the case in Micah's day, my goodness, we see this is actually the case in Paul's day. Paul writes to Timothy and he tells Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, For the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. They will turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths. Friends, do your ears itch? Do your ears itch? Do you read blogs? Do you listen to podcasts or hear sermons that only make you feel good? Do you like listening to those who will tell you about how much God loves you, but they're not really going to talk to you much about sin or judgment or hell or even the need to live a holy life? 
do you crave those that preach self-help, comfort, and convenience with catchy slogans that motivate you for the week of the head, keeping everything positive going into the week? Now remember, on this side of the cross, Christ calls us to live in a manner worthy of the gospel that saved us. So brothers and sisters, examine what you hear under the microscope of God's word. Be like the Bereans from Acts chapter 17, if you remember, right? Who examined the apostles' words daily to see if what they said was true. The way that you spot counterfeit, half-truth messages is by knowing what your Bible says, right? That's part of the reason why we're doing all the training with Simeon Trust, when you think about this. It's equipping you all to rightly handle the word and be able to give it to others. You don't have to go to another study in order to have some other woman who's an expert in these things or a man who's an expert in these things to be able to give that to you. You can study God's word on your own and examine it on your own to be able to rightly handle it and to be able to give it to others so that you're not duped by false, counterfeit, half-truth messages like these prosperity preachers in Micah's day. That's why we do what we do. When God gave his people the law, it was meant to govern and rule over them. When we reject God's word, we're rejecting God's rule over our lives. And not only are we rejecting his rule, we're actually rejecting all of the good things that would come by actually receiving God's word. Look at verse 7. Look at verse 7. Don't my words bring good to the one who walks uprightly? Well, how do they walk uprightly? Because they know the word of God. They listen, they hear it, and they receive it. They walk uprightly in what comes but good in their life. Following the words of these prophets leads to defrauding your neighbor in reaping disaster. They think it's great right now. God's judgment is coming, and it's not going to be so great moments from now. Their words don't confront injustice. They actually cater to injustice. God's word shows us how to live the good life. And so, friends, do you see the connection really right here between points one and point two? Rejecting God's word led to self-rule where they what? They coveted, they seized property, they deprived people of their inheritance. Do you see the connection? Idolatry manifesting itself in covetousness. Why? Because they've rejected the word of God. They don't want to hear it anymore. And so it just fosters a life of rebellion against God. I love what author Melissa Kruger says when she put it this way. The problem in coveting isn't that we don't have something. The problem is that we don't believe something. Coveting is a matter of worship, and it's also a matter of faith. It's a matter of belief. They lived the way that they did because they did not believe God. They did not believe that word because they rejected it. And so when you covet, your heart disbelieves. It disbelieves. It disbelieves that God won't judge It just believes that Christ isn't enough to fully satisfy you. That God's word doesn't actually bring good to those who walk uprightly, but it actually enslaves us and it holds us back from our true potential. These are the lies that we believe. Coveting is just exposing that disbelief. And so friend, if 
if you're not a, a Christian, if you don't identify as a Christian, I want to encourage you to actually consider for a minute what rejecting God's word in Christ will cost you. I want you just to consider this for a minute, okay? It's going to impact the lives of others around you. The Lord says in verses 8 and 9, look right there, that his people have risen up like an enemy. They strip the robe off their neighbor, they force women out of their homes, and they take the blessing of their inheritance from their children. Lives are impacted because God's word has been rejected. This word that was supposed to bring life is actually thrown out, right? It's been thrown out for lies that itch ears and that consume people. And so, friend, don't assume that your decision not to follow God's word is only just between you and God. It will affect others around you. Others are going to be impacted in some way, shape, or form. And not only that, your life will forever suffer the consequences of that decision. The Lord says, look there in verse 10. The Lord says in verse 10, get up and leave, for this is not your place of rest. God is is sending Judah into exile out of the land, out of their inheritance, out of their place of rest, because they've rebelled against him by rejecting his word and robbing his people. In doing so, what do they do but sign their death warrant? Friend, I pray that you wouldn't sign that death warrant by listening to people who will just tell you what you want to hear all the way on your way to hell. Listen to God's word of judgment and look to Christ who died to pay for your sin and trust in him who perfectly obeyed the Father by giving his own life so that you don't have to receive eternal death, but you can receive eternal life by turning from your sin and trusting in him. Friend, I want you to consider that. If you have questions about that, I'm more than happy to chat with you about that after the service. I pray that judgment would not be the final word for you in this life. Although God's judgment is certain for those who reject his word, so is his redemption for those who listen to his word. Point number three, the redemption from judgment. Verses 12 and 13. Well, in the midst of all of this judgment... (laughs) that we have gotten in chapters 1 and 2. We're finally coming to the end of the first section of the book right here. And the Lord finally lifts us out of this judgment, and he concludes this section on a word of hope. The Lord won't leave his true believing people behind. He will not abandon them in exile forever, but will gather a people for himself again. Just as he planned disaster to those who rejected his word in chapter 2, verse 3, So he promises to save those who are truly his. We see this in verse 12. Look there. He says, I will indeed gather all of you, Jacob. I will collect the remnant of Israel. Now throughout scripture, we see God preserving a remnant among his people, Israel. Not all of Israel is believing, is a believing Israel. But the remnant within Israel was a small band of believers who were righteous that remained faithful to the Lord. Right? In the days of Noah, God preserved Noah and his family. In the days of Joseph and his family, God preserved them from a worldwide famine. In the days of Elijah, God preserved 7,000 in Israel who didn't worship the false god Baal. And in this text, while the people are about to go into exile, God promises to gather the remnant 
again. And you notice how he's going to do this. Do you notice the language in verse 12 right there of how he's going to do this? It says that he will gather and bring them together like sheep in a pen, like a flock in the middle of its pasture. He's going to do it like a shepherd is going to do it. And we're going to see this language of shepherd and sheep throughout the book of Micah. We also see it all the way throughout the book or throughout the scriptures themselves. God is a shepherd to his people. Right? Think about Psalm 23. The Lord is my what? He's my shepherd. And what Micah is prophesying is a day when a future deliverer will gather God's people like a shepherd gathers his flock. But not only will he gather this noisy multitude of people into a pen, he will actually fight for them, which is what we see in verse 13. You have shepherd language in verse 12, and now we have one who's going to fight for his people in verse 13. It says there in verse 13, one who breaks out, who breaks open, the way will advance before them. They will break out. Their king will pass through before them the Lord as their leader. So not only is this a shepherd, but this is also a king. This is also the Lord himself who will break his people out of the prison of exile among their enemies. Now Micah's original audience probably would have understood this during their time as God's spirit anointing a human king like King David, who was a shepherd king, to deliver them from exile. That's probably how they understood it at the time. But as with many prophecies, there is a near and a future fulfillment. There's a near fulfillment, and there is a future fulfillment. And we see the near fulfillment of of this promise by God delivering Judah from that Assyrian invasion in 701 BC. We talked about that last week, how they got right up to the neck of Jerusalem and were about to take it until the Lord delivered them from them and knocked down 185,000 of the Assyrians. But there's also another near fulfillment of this. After being taken into exile to Babylon for 70 years, God would actually bring his people out of exile into back home to the land of Judah. But that's the near fulfillment. God's purposes are far bigger than temporary deliverances, though they anticipate that greater deliverance. And we see an even greater fulfillment when we come to the New Testament, when the word made flesh, steps on the scene. The promised king from the line of David. The one who is, as we just read a moment ago, he is what? The good shepherd of the sheep. He calls his own sheep by name. And he does what? He leads them out. He goes ahead of them. The sheep follow him because they know his voice. They listen to him. They don't reject his word. And as he goes ahead of them, He lays down his life for the sheep. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is our shepherd king who went before us, who broke open the way out of sin and death so that we might break out in joy as those whose sins are forgiven. No longer does judgment have our number because the good shepherd laid down his life for us as his sheep. Our king led us out of captivity to our sin by conquering the grave so that we might be gathered to him whenever he returns to be able to receive our eternal, imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven inheritance. That's what he has done. This is the divine breakthrough 
that we always needed. This is it. One that secured our inheritance, not for a time, but for all eternity. This breakthrough will radically transform your life. Because even as we roam this earth as exiles, looking toward our heavenly home, we do so comforted by these last two verses. Knowing that Christ is going to return, he's going to gather his remnant, the church, and take us home. And because there's actually been a divine breakthrough through our shepherd king, Jesus, in our life, we don't have to take advantage of others for selfish gain. We don't have to. Instead, we're generous and provide support to those among us in need because our greatest need has been met in Christ. We're compassionate because we love God and others above ourselves. We're content because we treasure Christ above all earthly treasure or anything else that this life could ever give us. And so, brothers and sisters, as you fight the oppressive nature of your sin, remember this divine breakthrough in your life. Remember the comfort that this text actually gives you in the midst of so much judgment. Let this divine breakthrough be evident in your own life and how you love God and how you love others with the great hope and comfort that the gospel alone can provide you. Let's pray together.